This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Topic of the week is education funding, and this show in particular was uh, precipitated by a proposal by the governor's office uh, to, uh, which described in one media report as an 11th hour proposal, a proposal to really have very, very sweeping changes in how our schools are funded. And, and the staggering thing to me about this was the magnitude of the changes proposed. You would think this would have been talked about in December and uh, be a part and parcel of the state of the state address and then be widely uh, considered and addressed. Instead, it seems to be we're now getting near the end of a legislative session and hence the uh, media description as a, quote, 11th hour proposal. Our guests are, first of all, Beth Lewis, who uh, many hats. Uh, I see her as somebody who who may be on the edge of transforming the politics of Arizona. She is director of Save Our Schools Arizona, which uh, was behind uh, – I think really the first major successful attempt by teachers to influence public policy and education in the state of Arizona. Uh, Chris Cotterman is uh, with the Arizona School Boards Association. Uh, you share an acronym, though. ASBA is also a small business association. You probably get confused all the time. Yeah, occasionally we get that yeah. one. Um, and a, a director of government relations and an expert in school finance. And, and let me go first, if I could, to you. I've described this proposal as very – very deep, substantial changes. Please start from scratch. Tell me if I got that right and tell me what this proposal would do. Well, it does a couple of things. And I think the the way to think of it is it, it takes from districts and then it gives back to both districts and charter schools. And, and I don't mean that to sound adversarial, but there are some things in the formula that are exclusively for school districts right now. Um, a, a little adjustment that gives more money for teachers with more years of experience and then a the ability for districts to use essentially excess transportation funding capacity um, to fund other aspects of their operations. And that's been in existence since 1980, both of those. Um, the repo- proposal would remove those from the district side and then added add back a little bit of transportation funding and a little bit of base level funding. Um, and that base level funding would also flow to charter schools as well because of the way that our formula works. So it's robbing Peter to pay Paul. On the front end, but I, I have to be fair. And on the back end, what it does is it allows the opportunity for school districts to opt into the charter formula instead. Um, but in order to do that, they have to uh, get their property taxpayers to agree to pay um, a slightly higher uh, – primary property tax rate. And in exchange for that, they get a higher basic level of funding that's guaranteed, um, but they give up access to bonds and overrides and things that they have had um, for access to historically. You just you just lost most of your audience. Yeah, see, not, be, not because of your description, which I thought was very clear, but because this is inherently complex. Yes, it is. Yep, absolutely. Uh, 
I want to backtrack for a second because I think I'm like most people. I I probably follow more than most, but still this business of charter charter schools, I've been told, are public schools. Is that what what is a charter school? A charter school is a private entity, usually a nonprofit, but not always, that enters into a contract with the state to provide a public education service. So they're essentially a private nonprofit entity. Um, that receives public dollars to perform the the function of public education. But these private nonprofits can they not, in fact, contract with for profit organizations? They can, yes, absolutely. Which means that there are entities that can and do make money off the existence of, of charter schools. I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. Um. I had understood that there are also charter schools that are run by school districts. Historically, there were, um, which is kind of an interesting part of this proposal because we had at the beginning the ability for district school districts to sponsor charter schools. And a lot of districts that weren't able to get their voters to approve extra funding, mm-hmm. um, extra property taxes – were converting their schools to charter schools to get that higher bump because there's a little bit higher guaranteed formula rate. Mm-hmm. Um, the legislature ended that practice because they thought it was too expensive. It was it was creating a bigger liability for the state's general fund. Um, so now there are no longer charter schools that are run by school districts. That's correct. They are all run by private entities. That is correct. Correct. Yep. Okay. That that thank you. That educates me. I I did not know that, and that's a significant change. So, uh, Beth, your take. What, what is this about? What's going on? Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Um, I think we can all agree that the school funding formula definitely needs to be revamped. Um, I think there's broad consensus there. However, uh, this process has been wild. I mean, calling it 11th hour, it's more like 1159. Uh, normally, a process like this that overhauls an enormous, you know, $5 billion a year program would be undertaken over a series of months, years, and the people who are most impacted usually have a seat at the table. So, you know, with this process, it's pretty clear that special interest groups, school choice lobbyists who are promoting for-profit education have been pushing this, and superintendents, school boards, educators, parents were not you know, in any way consulted. And as you mentioned, this bill is incredibly complex. I know that the writers of the bill, the sponsors of the bill, are having trouble answering questions when asked. Um, you know, I'm getting a lot of, yeah, you know, that's a really good point. I can look into that. Or, uh, yeah, I'll have to check on that. That's a good question. And, you know, for something like this that's being pushed so late in the game to um, be so complicated that even the bill sponsors and writers can't answer questions is really concerning. And if we're talking about a mechanism that would strip funding from 121 school districts, as Chris laid out, I think that uh, we need to pump the brakes and consider, you know, trying this again another year. Do you big question to you, Beth? Is this part, do you think, of just a grand scheme to uh, push us towards more and more charter schools and fewer public schools or or smaller public schools? Yeah, I mean, that's a large question. I think that there are different folks pushing it for different reasons. But 
Um, the special interests who wrote this bill and are pushing it uh, are proponents of something called backpack funding. Um, and that means that each child receives the same amount of funding. And the reason it's called backpack funding is because, you know, they believe that children should be able to take whatever their taxpayer dollars are and go to any school or school model they wish, including private schools via, you know, ESA, STO vouchers, um, homeschool, micro school, you name it, underwater basket weaving with your neighbor, <laughs> whatever your parents want. Um, and so, you know, they say that backpack funding should create a fairer playing field, but you know, actually, that's not how it works out because each child, you know, not every child needs the same amount to be educated. Um, I talked to Chuck Essex about this, and he pointed out that some districts take up, you know, a few square miles, whereas others occupy 600 square miles. And so transportation costs vary widely. Um, and this bill really doesn't account for that. And do, do they, does it occur? The other thing that I know about this is it, I mean, kids that aren't doing as well, kids that are in ESL, kids that are uh, uh, in any number of uh, other programs, they cost potentially a lot more. It it doesn't account for any of those differences at all? It does because um, it doesn't mess with the current group B weights. But, you know, there are so many other group B weights that, you know, other groups are advocating for, like opportunity funding for low-income students that are just ignored by programs like this, and to your point, it pushes more funding into the for-profit education models and less funding to many districts, especially uh, more outlying rural districts. We'll return in just a moment with uh, Beth Lewis and Chris Cotterman talking about funding and education in Arizona and a specific proposal that's on the table sort of being potentially rushed through the legislature. We'll see what happens, uh, and we'll talk about it more when we return in the Think Tank in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back discussing school funding. By the way, in in her bio, I think that <laughs> uh, Beth Lewis is here, and, and the thing that I, I, I think failed to miss is that she is also a uh, full-time public school teacher. Uh, Chris Cotterman is here also and is a, a funding expert. And I thought, you know, I know that school funding is incredibly complicated and you're a guy that understands it. And if you would paint for us kind of a, a reasonably Reader's Digest-esque picture, just just detailed enough that people get a sense. I, I think people have a sense, oh, well, my property taxes pay for schools. It's I know a lot more complicated than that. Uh, could you paint a picture to describe that for us? Sure. So the, the basic thing to know about Arizona is that we're an equalized funding system, um, but we're equalized on the spending side. So um, every school district can spend the same amount, the amount of money that's it's allowed by the formula calculation um, and no more. And the formula is headcount adjust. Is it adjusted by anything? Yeah, it's adjust. It's a it's a per student uh, formula count. Uh, there's there's a per student count. Then we add weights. You heard Beth mention Group B weights earlier. That's a weighted system. So if you have a student with special education needs, they'll get extra. So instead of adding more funding amounts, we just say, oh, that student might be worth one and a half students or two okay. students, and that's in effect it, it gives them more. And it yeah. is in your estimation. Are those additional weights appropriate to the uh, the additional burden that they impose? Um, well, I think 
I don't mean to nitpick, but I don't think it's a burden. It's just a cost issue, right? So I think that, but no, I think that most special education administrators would agree that, and teachers would agree that we're underfunded on ed- special education in the state of Arizona. Um, we have been working over the last couple of years to try to increase those weights to make sure that we get costs aligned with. So schools revenue. that have a disproportionate amount of special ed kids are really underfunded relative to other schools. We believe so. Yes, both the, both on the on the instruction side and the transportation side, because you have to uh, provide transportation for those students. Sometimes, in some cases, door to door rather than just well, getting in. I, I had a son who was uh, was exactly that. I remember this big old school bus came up to our front door, and he was the first kid on, and. Uh, uh, you know, it it went all over town picking up other kids, and you'd think it, it was the funny thing about it was he loved it. It was he's like four <laughs> years old, and he sat there on the you know on the high chair seat and whatever, and he spent it, it was great because we would have driven him. I said if it, if it had to, but Amy's got an hour bus ride. Yeah, and fortunate thing is he loved it because yeah. it could have been torture. Absolutely, it was, it was a big chunk of his day. Yeah. So, so back to you, back to you. Yeah, no. So you take that, you take the essentially that student count, and then that creates a fund, uh, an amount that you're entitled to as a school mm-hmm. district. Um, what we do then is the school district runs a calculation based on its tax rate, and it says, okay, the tax rate can fulfill X dollars, and that's a property tax property rate. tax rate. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the school district levies a property tax rate, and if that property tax rate can cover your entire budget. Then you get no state funding. That's it. It's called a non-state aid district. Okay. Other school districts, um, they take the property tax rate. They say, okay, you can fund half, say. Then the state will come in and fill in the other half. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part of the formula is you get credit for miles uh, that your buses run. Um, and then – So that this helps the rural stu- schools that have to do more transportation. Correct. And so then we have the – the thing that's relevant here, it's called the transportation revenue control limit, and it's tricky. And this is what happens with rural districts. So say way back in 1980, um, you had a really high mileage, but over time, your mileage has gone down. Well, you can levy the difference between your current mileage rate and what you used to have as a property tax. So that's called the transportation revenue control limit, and that impacts rural districts quite a bit. So that doesn't give you the extra money from the state, but it does allow you to impose it on your own folks as a tax. Correct. So it cushions the drop. Correct. And so that's sort of the formula side. Mm-hmm. And then on school districts, you also have – voters will be familiar with bonds and overrides. Mm-hmm. And so those overrides are extra up to 15 percent that you can ask your property taxpayers again to impose on themselves to fund extra – or in this case – really just basic operations because of our funding formula issues, um, and then bonds, which are buildings. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the state side in a nutshell. And then, of course, you have federal funds that come in on top of that. But um, we're, we're, what we're talking about in this proposal is only state. Yeah, now, federal funds, those mostly go to various kinds of special needs. Am I correct? Yeah. The two biggest pots are children living in poverty, Title I, mm-hmm. and special education, IDEA. There are so, some others, but those are the big ones. So. The federal money sort of backfills some or all of the extra need of poorer schools? Some. Some. Yeah. yeah okay. I would that, say that was going to be my next question, yeah. whether yeah. it's some or all. Yeah. So, for example, trans, uh, for special education, the federal government has a has a promise on IDA to pay you know up to 40 percent of the cost of a special education student. And right now, they're mm-hmm. about 13. So. Okay. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes. Let's, sure. go, let's go back to this particular proposal now. Uh, Beth, you've been – I'm guessing you've been down at the legislature talking to people. What's the status of this bill right now? 
You know, I think a lot of lawmakers who represent rural communities are rightfully um, a little bit concerned about this. And I'm hearing on both sides of the aisle some, you know, very genuine questions that are being asked. And I think people are sort of reluctant to put their stamp on it when they know that their local schools uh, are, are probably going to lose a lot of funding. Um, and that, you know, like I said, that's on both sides of the aisle. People are really listening. Lawmakers are listening to their constituents and the local superintendents who are coming down, trying to testify, trying to explain like the real human impacts that this will have. And so I think it has sort of stalled the bill a bit. And it is, um, you know, it's giving people genuine pause. Do you see uh, just doing arithmetic in my head? I know that, uh, you know. You don't get anything through without 100 percent of the Republicans unless there's a Democratic defection. Have you encountered any Democrats who, who, who would potentially line up in favor of this? No, I have, I have not heard of anybody on that side of the aisle that's supporting it. So if, if, that's whole, if that holds, this is dead? Is that where we are? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to knock on my uh, wooden desk here and cross my fingers and toes, but, you know, we have a lot that remains to be seen. Nothing is ever dead until society die, which means the end of the legislature. Um, you know, we know that we're dealing with a legislature that is acting differently this year. Um, and really, this bill is sort of reflective of the, the processes that we've seen around legislation this year. Um, because the legislature can't log roll non-budgetary bills into you know into the budget this year. They can't cram them through at the last minute because the Arizona Supreme Court last year decided that legislative log rolling was happening and cannot happen. Uh, out of time um, here, so I will I will pursue that with you after the break. Uh, interesting comment about change in legislative rules when we return in the think tank in just a moment. Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back discussing uh, schools, school finance, some proposals that are out there. Chris Cotterman is with the Arizona School Boards Association, specifically government relations, which very often means finance. Yes. Which is a big part of what we're talking about. Beth Lewis is a uh, practicing teacher in uh, the uh, Tempe schools and is also the director of Save Our Schools Arizona, which has become the uh, primary vehicle, I think, for, for teachers' voice in educational policy in the state. Welcome back to both of you. Beth, you are... Uh, really become, among other things, uh, a kind of a, a lobbyist in that you're spending a lot of your time down at the legislature talking to people. And you said something very enticing before the break, which is uh, how uh, things are different in part due to a court decision. I wonder if you could elaborate on that. And, and we'll talk about that. Yeah. So in years past, you know, during budget talks, there there's a lot of stuff that pops up at the last minute that really has nothing to do with the budget. Um, you know, on break, Chris pointed out, rightfully so, that, you know, th this bill in particular, 1269, could be wrapped into the budget. And, you know, we're not really considering anything dead until budget session is over. But I think lawmakers are much more skittish than I've seen in years past. I think it's because they want to get out early. It's an election year. Um, they're very 
susceptible to public pressure and bad press right now because of the election year. And they know the governor's office wants to avoid any lawsuits relating to log rolling. Um, Like I said, the Supreme Court said that they can't wrap anything that we could argue is non-budget related into bills um, in the budget. So, and that was a court came down thing. and threw out half of the legislative agenda from last mm-hmm. year for their doing just that. Yeah. Right. And they don't want to deal with that again. So I think all of this sort of amounts to a lot of bills that are being pushed through at the last minute. There's less uh, transparency than usual, less public testimony. Um, we're seeing sort of the the way that committees are being conducted is with um, sort of like an angst towards the public and less, uh, you know, two minutes per side. We're going to allow three speakers, even though 50 people showed up to testify against the bill. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a huge appetite to hear from the public on these issues, uh, which are, are, you know, not popular. And, you know, even with the legislature being relatively the same as last year with some appoint- new appointments, um, it just feels different. We're used to some transparency, some respect for you know average people, and it feels pretty lost this year. Um, so I'm not surprised to see this bill being rammed through at the 11th hour and not surprised to see very little testimony because it's really just special interests that are running the game down there. Yeah, I think that uh, to best point, they're running a pretty tight ship down there. They know that they've only got a couple of votes to one vote to lose precisely um, if, unless they have a democratic partnership. So, um, you know, they're trying to do everything they can to keep – keep the train on the rails and give minimal opportunity for people to to change their mind or buck the party line. If uh, Beth, uh, you're spending time down there. If the Democrats hold, which seems to have been the case for the last several years, um, you, uh, you know, as Chris pointed out, you only need one uh, one defecting Republican to basically kill the whole thing. Uh, you got a candidate in mind for that? Most likely to. It kind of varies on on the issue at hand. I mean, we've seen Senator Pace sort of defect on some issues that are near and dear to his heart, more around like medical issues um, and, you know, privacy. Um, We've seen Representative John hold strong to his values around not expanding ESA vouchers. Um, You know, Representative Osborne has said publicly that she'd like to see, you know, if, if vouchers are to be expanded, they need to be done so uh, by the voters, since the voters have already rejected them. So, you know, I think that there is there is a lot of room for conversation. We have some good, moderate Republicans who, um, you know, are willing to have conversations around protecting public education. Well, one of the, the interesting, you didn't mention the name of the legislator, Republican legislator mm-hmm. who's defected in some cases in the fact and is a teacher. And is not running for and is not running for reelection, I believe. Well, I believe you're referring to Representative Udall, and um, you know, in the interest of transparency, she has historically uh, bucked a lot of these bad ideas, but is currently sponsoring uh, some of the ideas that we're talking about today. And she is running for superintendent of public instruction. So I think you know, as much as I'm saying that public pressure makes folks skittish, it also you know, sometimes people feel that they can evade that that publicity. Mm. Actually, it was not not the one I was thinking of, and I'm I'm just blanking. I was a man. Oh. <laughs> um, 
gosh, I'm I'm just blanking on the name, but uh, Republican legislator teacher. I think he teaches in the charter school. Oh, oh Senator Boyer. Yeah, oh, bingo, Senator bingo. Boyer. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. I knew you'd know the name. So, <laughs> yeah, Senator Boyer is is uh, promoting voucher expansion right now, but is also um, pushing you know what's being called the grand bargain, which is to get more funding into schools uh, as the governor passes his flat mm-hmm. tax. So, a lot of. Uh, Fun ideas coming up out of the legislature right now, <laughs> uh, Beth. I I think it was you that I heard say something that I thought was which intrigued me, which is that long haul, um, and and correct me if it wasn't you. Long haul, we're not going to get significant reform in the education system with this legislator. Was that you? And do you believe that? I mean, I have definitely said that <laughs> over the years. I think that, you know, we at Save Our Schools, Arizona, are super focused on flipping the balance of power at the legislature uh, this during this election. We have a great opportunity. We have new maps for legislative districts. There are uh, six competitive districts, and I think, you know, at the very least, we can tie one of the chambers, and I think that changes you know, really the way that things are conducted, it changes, um, it forces lawmakers to actually engage in bipartisan negotiation. And right now that's just really not happening. Um, and I think it would change things for the better. Yeah. Um, and we're one vote, away, one vote away from a tie in either chamber at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think the the other side of that it would, in terms of hope, is that was the expectation and the hope two years ago, and it was a presidential year, which in the past has always augured better for Democrats, uh, and uh, this is an off-year election, which usually works better for Republicans, and you have a, a Democratic administration that's not particularly popular, and usually the second year of a presidential administration is usually the doldrums for the incumbent party. In other words, the landscape, a lot of it, looks uh, foreboding. Yeah, no, I agree. But two years ago, Arizona was one of only three states in the whole country to pick up a legislative seat uh, closer to a tie. And um, I think the ground game is strong. And that was something that we really couldn't put in place in 2020 because of the pandemic. Um, So I feel very optimistic. Voters overwhelmingly support public education. We've got candidates who support public schools who are already knocking doors and our volunteers are out in full force working for those candidates. And uh, I think that there is a very distinct possibility that we're going to see some changes next year. Uh, is there, do you see any foretell uh, any chance? Are you, are you working on or considering anything in the way of an initiative? Is there, is there something that could be on the ballot? I don't know. I think time will tell. I, I will speak for us that we are laser focused on candidates right now. And I think that, you know, there is um, equal parts exhaustion and motivation within our volunteer base to maybe not work on initiatives and referenda, but to focus on candidates because we know that we don't want to keep fighting these fights. And it's just going to be Groundhog Day down there uh, with public education attack bills over and over and over until we change the balance of power. So that's our job this year. Yeah, I just think for a little bit of context there, I think that uh, also the folks that are typically running initiatives, um, ASBA can't be involved in elections. I have to say that, you know, 
disclaimer. But the folks that are, I think, are uh, have spent a lot of resources on Proposition 208 and the associated legal fight. Um, and you know, we're looking at some other opportunities um, to do other things like uh, the Prop 123 trigger funding cliff stuff. Um, so there's a little bit, I think, of trying to replenish the reserves um, this year and and uh, and because they'll be needed, I think, in, in the future. Well, uh, we'll return in just a moment with Chris Cotterman and Beth Lewis. And, and when we do, I want to ask Beth uh, my, about my observation that uh, in most of these fights, uh, it seems to me that the teachers and the educational institutions have been largely playing defense. And, and I want to get you to react to that. And that, that is a obviously in the context of who's in the legislature and what their sensibilities are. We'll talk about that and other things when we conclude uh, this uh, show in the Think Tank in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with uh, Chris Cotterman and Beth Lewis. Concluding session, the question I threw out before the before the break is, uh, Beth, do you think, my, my sense has been in almost every one of these issues, it's the legislature or the governor is proposing something to do that you would see largely as a step backwards. And it feels like you're basically playing defense since since the offense of several years ago when uh, there was the original SOS movement and the 20% raise for teachers, which really wasn't 20%, it was 19 or 18, and it was spread over three years. So it wasn't, but it was arguably in the neighborhood of 20% total, uh, though diminished by three years of inflation. Since then, have you pretty much been playing defense on all of this? You know, that's that's a really good question. I I. Don't, I feel like at the legislature, we definitely play defense. Obviously, you know, the majority party and the governor's office hold all the cards and they can truly do almost whatever they want. Um, so we, we are definitely defending the goal down there and the goal being, you know, funding for public schools and support for public schools. But, you know, broad coalitions have come together to um, pass Proposition 208, which was definitely on the offense, getting $900 million into schools every year. Unfortunately, we have a stacked Supreme Court in Arizona that's appointed by the governor. So, you know, that becomes the cards are stacked against us and we're playing defense once again. Um, And even the referendum last year, I think you could argue that that's defense, but it's also one heck of an offense, right? I mean, I think being able to say, yes, you hold all the power, but we are, we the people are the fourth branch of government. And in Arizona, we have a constitutional right to refer these bad laws. Um, you know, it's a big flex. Unfortunately, we're, we're now looking at the governor making an end run on voters, overturning the law that was referred to the ballot that voters should have an opportunity to weigh in on this November, getting rid of it, nullifying it and passing basically the same law or potentially even worse again. So, you know, it, it, yes, we feel like we're constantly playing defense mixed with one heck of an offense and you know they keep moving the goalposts on us so that's why we're really focused on candidate wins because we can't keep playing these games because bottom line arizona kids aren't winning ever do you ever get 
consult you. I mean, I'm meaning the you broadly, not only you, Beth Lewis, but I inclusive of that or others in your organization, grassroots teacher folks being. Do you get brought in the governor's office for any of these discussions when these things are being put together? Never. And I think that's true not only of teachers right now, but also just, I mean, the institutional players like – Well, school board, you, who yeah. you represent. Right. I mean, I think that one of the one of the things we're fighting against here is that um, it is fashionable right now in conservative politics to, you know, dunk on school districts. I think that mm-hmm. in general, they've – They've really perfected the messaging of, oh, we don't like we don't dislike schools, but we really don't like these bureaucratic public institutions that, you know, are trying to indoctrinate our kids, et cetera, et cetera. And so the 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 messaging out there is really anti-district, um, you know, anti-establishment. And so it's it's a benefit. To, to these guys to, to roll out stuff that says that, oh, this is this is something that doesn't have the hands of the bureaucracy all over it. But the fact of the matter is that um, the people who are running the schools have to implement whatever it is that you are proposing. Well, and so that's that's an issue. That's an old symbolic game that I see being played. When I hear the word bureaucrat, in my mind, in most cases, I substitute the word expert. The people are being character bureaucrat is a word that, uh, like lobbyist, connotes a, a negative perception. But if you look at the vast majority of people that are being characterized, they are people who hold positions because they have many years of education and experience in whatever it is that they're doing. And by calling, be aware when somebody uses that word, stop and think for a moment who. What kind of person are you really talking about? It, you, the word bureaucrat to me conveys kind of an idiot who sits behind a desk and just, I don't know, makes up stuff and screws everything up. Uh, I don't think that's a fair characteristic. And not only in education, basically in almost every field. There are people who are hired in government are, uh, you know, when you say, I don't know, you say government and people conjure up that, I don't know, the dumbest person they ever encountered at the DMV, right? But, yeah. <laughs> but if you look at who is populated in government, they are people who are hired because they have a skill set. Those jobs are hard to get. They are competitive. And they're brought in because they actually know something about that which they're dealing. So my, yeah. my soapbox on that. Uh, and and I, a fair point, Beth, I think, yeah, the, the 208 was not – uh, defensive. That's a, I think, a, a fair point. That's a second. That's a second instance of of being on the, uh, on the offense. The other thing that I know you guys wanted to talk about was rural schools. There's some interesting dynamics there and ways in which they're being systematically shortchanged. I wonder if you both could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I'll start that one. I think that based on what we just said, it was what I just said about you know sort of the anti institution stuff. There's this. There's a really sort of rubber meets the road moment when, you know, it's nice, it's easy to say, oh yeah, I support the schools in my district. It's these, it's these, it's these organizations, these liberal organizations, these bureaucratic organizations that I don't like. But when you have a, a proposal like we've been talking about, and your actual schools start calling you up and saying, hey, this is not good for us, then most rural schools are represented by Republicans, and so. You have this situation where they they want to go along, but they also don't want to be on the hook for actually 
cutting education funding in their district heading into you know November 2022. And I'll bet you, I don't know if you guys ever count that, but I'll bet you those uh, school boards in those areas are, though they're not elected on a partisan basis, I'll bet you they're overwhelmingly Republicans who are running the school boards. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we the, the, the idea that ASBA is cons, consists of only liberal school board members is a absolute myth. We got all kinds. Beth, your comments about rural schools. Yeah, I mean, I think these lawmakers are looking at the fact that these rural schools in their in their areas are the number one employer of their towns, the only school of choice in their neighborhood. Um, you know, there aren't a bunch of charters or private schools that families can choose, and they're the center of the community, right? Like these are. These are the schools where the whole town congregates for Friday night lights and adults can go for night classes and that's where their kids eat. They know their teachers, right? They grocery shop with their teachers. They're their neighbors. And so these attacks on public schools to send more money to big box for profit charters in Maricopa County is not popular. My observation would be I think that's why Save Our Schools was so, so powerful you tapped into really a separate and nonpartisan dimensions that that people, everybody, almost everybody wants good schools. And that a lot of the debate is, what does it take you to get? The advocates of charters say, well, the schools are messing up and so charters are the answer. But, but they share the value of we want good schools for our kids. Absolutely. We just did a poll in November and 91% of Arizona voters said, yes, every school should have the resources they need to deliver quality education for every child. 91% of Arizona voters. And we see that, you know, I go out and knock doors, talk to people all over the state, and it's overwhelmingly clear. Arizona voters support local public schools. And what percentage of the current distribution, Chris, you might have your hand on this a little bit better, if you were to take the Arizona school population, give me ballpark percentages. How many are in public schools? How many are in charter schools? How many are in uh, private schools? Percentages, roughly. Yeah, well, about 80% of students in the state are in traditional district schools. Um, about 20% are in charters. Uh, that's of the enrolled public school district students or okay. public okay. district schools. And how, big, how big is private schools relative uh, to that? It's hard to tell because we don't collect data on it at all. Okay. So um, – you know, so about it's, 5%. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so it wouldn't and affect And about one-fifth of those are on vouchers. Well, that's true. So yeah. one-fifth of those would mean ballpark 1% of the entire school population is on vouchers, if I'm just yeah. doing the arithmetic on what you mm-hmm. said. Yeah, it's, it's, that's probably mm-hmm. roughly accurate. Like fast napkin math, yes. yes, yes. All right. We, we got... God, real quick, do you got to, you know, let me give you a thir- 30 seconds or 15 each if you, you want a concluding thought because we really, we're, we're 45 seconds out. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, the biggest problem that we have today is a disagreement about how much resources public education requires. Um, it's a problem when we all agree on public education is important, but we don't agree on what uh, the adequate level of investment is, and I think that's where we're at right Beth, now. Beth, you're down to about 10 seconds. You got a thought for us? <laughs> yeah, just a lot of people say you can't fix it by throwing money at the problem, but I'm a teacher in the classroom, and I assure you we need so much more in terms of resources, counselors, people, aides, um, and our kids deserve so much more. 
You get the final thought. That's education in Arizona. We'll be back next week. In the think tank, you want to reach me, the website is mikeoneal.org, and that's a vehicle to email me if you want or social media, the whole works. See you next week in the think tank.